All right. Well, welcome. Good to see everybody again. Welcome to those who are online. I think the Holbrooks. Everybody say hello to the Holbrooks, uh, Sarah Rosales, and Elena Gerard. Hello. <laughs> Good to have you. It's not so cold. So let's talk about the tables. Uh, now, now, this first question, you know, there's a very simple and straight answer. I think some of you, you got it. But I guess I was trying to get you to think about the fact that we had about a 300-year revolution about this issue. I mean, that's kind of the essence of what Calvin is saying here, that what, what in the world is it's the most incredible doctrine in the world. What do you, you think is going on with that? I mean, let's reflect on that. So the first one is just uh, the doctrine of justification by faith is the main hinge on which religion turns so that we devout the great attention and care to it. What do you think he means? What's going on? Why is it such a big deal? And put it in, put it in more of the global context. What's its significance, I guess, in terms of church history even? Not just personally. Now that I've broadened the question a little bit for you. What do you all think? It can be simple. First, start with the simple. Why is it so important? Assuming you know what it is. Which if you don't, we're going to learn. Yeah, that's interesting. I hadn't even thought of that one, but it's the, it's sort of uh, relative to the work uh, the work of Christ. Christ said he came in order to die. Kind of raises the question: Why did he die? If not for our justification? Well, there are five theories to that, by the way, and we're going to look at them. But that's a good point. It is it is it does beg the question of the cross. Good point. What else? Justification by faith. Defines who we are. Defines who we are. Good. And all of the things that we accrue. And all the things we what? All, all the things that we get because we're justified. Yeah. So everything hinges, any and all benefits that we enjoy hinges upon that issue. Are, are, so what, I mean, don't give me a theological answer right now. Um, what is justification? What is it? What's it about? What's justification about? Think about it as if you've never heard the word before, and now you hear the word justified. Think about, let's just try to get it more, sometimes it's good to keep things so simple it's profound. What, what's this whole doctrine about, basically? So, Andrew chimed in and said, fundamentally, all religion is either about my works or God's works. Okay, good. So, so think about, the, the, okay, I'll go back to the question I just mentioned, but so Andrew, uh, I wish we could talk, but I think his point would be, in some ways, this is what differentiates Christianity from all other religions. It's that big of a deal. Um, it's, it was that which, of course, eventually split the church, if you think of the Roman uh, controversy right during the Reformation. So it's a pretty big deal historically. And that if you go across the religions, uh, there really is no other doctrine like this in other religions, at least not directly. There, there's some semblances. Um, so that's cool. That's a, that's a pretty big thing. And it's also a thing that has been quite a, a, a thing of controversy in the life of the church. So, so what, what is justification? What do you think that, what, what does that sound like to you? Is, what's that talking about? Being right, reasonable. 
Okay, being right. Good. Uh, I feel like it means yeah, I'm right something. no matter what I do. Being right about no matter what you do. In the church. So to, to, what is a person doing when they're trying, you know, what is justification speaking about in terms of what a person is trying to do in his life or her life? If I'm... To be declared just. To be declared just, to justify myself would be to exactly make myself what? Good. Good. Make myself look good. Make, you know... Uh, I'm proving. I'm always. A lo- I'm. A, I'm living a life of trying to prove myself. So think of it. Justified could be a lot of things. I mean, if you're if you're walking on to a, a team and you want to participate in that team, you're trying to justify that you belong on that team, that you deserve to get on the field and play. Or if you're going to school, isn't that what we're doing? We're trying to justify ourselves. So sometimes we, we get this word and we're so used to hearing about it within our church tradition, we forget that this is, a, this is a common concept that we're doing all the time. We are always, 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 it never stops. It really is perhaps one of the greatest, most existential things that we're doing every day of our life. We're trying to justify ourselves to something, to someone, to, for some purpose. Now you begin to see how huge this is? It really defines what life is and that we live every day. We wake up every day. We walk out the door justifying ourselves, justifying why you should love me and marry me, justifying why this teacher should should pass and, and promote me to the next grade, justifying why. I mean, it really gets to the kind of, ooh, this is getting huge now. So you mean if we could find a way to to in a very deep sense, be past tense, fied, justified, as in it's done, how would that now reinterpret everything we're doing? All of a sudden there's a kind of, I don't know, maybe justified with a capital and justified with a small j, you know, but, but we're talking, this is just incredible if, that's now, if you're starting to pick this up. What, what do y'all think? Do you hear what I'm getting at? What you, any comments about this? Like being permanently justified. You don't have yeah. to start over again the next morning or the next Yeah. I mean, there's no qualification here. Justification. It doesn't mean justified as a student. I mean, you're waiting for all the qualification. Well, I'm, I'm, he's, he has justified or she has justified as an athlete. But justification, that means my being, my identity, who I am is all right now. Who I am is all right. Can you imagine that? If we really, really lived and felt that way, that I'm all right now with the, 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 you know, there's teachers, there's coaches, there's mentors, there's friends, there's a potential wife or potential husband or an existing wife and an existing husband, children, parents. We're always justifying, always trying to justify ourselves that we're, we're right or we're worthy of confidence or we're, we're trustworthy or we're lovable or we're smart or we're fast, whatever these things are. And then underneath all of that tripping is my very being, my existential who am I and am I all right? And this is a doctrine that gets to the essence of humanness itself. Are we all right? And especially as a Christian now, are we all right and what really matters is are we right with God? You know, I heard this great story once and um, about a musician. And, he, you know, he or she, I can't remember, you know, played in, in their recital. 
and they had and this is the recite this was the musician's professor or teacher and uh, I know I'm not telling it well but you know they played a um, she she played or he played at the end uh, she got a standing ovation or something and when she came off the stage uh, the person said well how did it make you feel you know and she goes justified you know but bigger than that she went on to say well tell me about that well it wasn't all those people who were standing it was that one man sitting over in the corner that was standing her professor that that made her feel justified and so you think about that everybody in the world could be clapping your teachers your your parents even which are pretty huge you know your spouse whatever but Ultimately, what we're saying, what Calvin is understanding here, is that the the essence of our being, when our Creator can stand up and applaud us, now it's all right. You know, my existence is right. So this is huge. It's huge not only because it's an existential question now. That's the way I wanted to at least get you to think about it. It's huge in church history because it it certainly distinguishes Christianity from all other religions. And it was huge within the church, you know, within the Roman church, the Catholic church, and Eastern church, because now we're getting at this whole question of, really, if what else is religion itself if it isn't how to be right with your creator? What, what else is religion? Because that gets at the whole issue of what happens to me after death if a creator is the one that decides that, if he's the judge. So you, now you begin to see why justification created an earthquake, and it's a pretty big deal. And that leads us to the second question um, about adoption versus sonship. What'd you think? How would you describe that? Can you get that where it's all in there? I don't know if it is. Yeah, it is. I thought it was orphan versus. It is. What did I say? Adoption. I did. Orphan versus son. Yeah, sonship. Adoption, yeah. We would be adopted as well. Right. But what would be the difference between being, uh, yeah, between being a an orphan and a son or daughter. Hello. Hi. Then this would even, we could talk about this even more in some ways. What, what, how would that change, how does that change a person? That's what I'm at, especially in relationship to uh, their, you know, their father. If you're an orphan, what's the, what's your what, posture? I would say, when you're an orphan, you're the same being, and when you're a son or daughter, you're reborn. Okay. Your identity starts to... And you're dealing with a... That's a Christian scenario, but, but that's good. You're right, and we're going to talk about that. But step back and ask, you're an orphan now. I mean, I'm literally, just for a moment, you're feeling like an orphan. You are an orphan. You have no, no father or mother, or you're not belonging to father or mother. And then versus a son or daughter. Now talk to me about the way life is you feel totally lost you don't have an umbilical cord to anything okay you feel like you're you know you can't you're just out there on you don't belong anywhere you don't belong no one belongs to you you don't belong to them yeah. what else you feel abandoned yeah. hmm? you feel abandoned abandoned insecure you have no chance of inheritance no no hope inheritance in the future is not there. How would you relate to, you know, it, think about the assurance that a son or daughter has in regards to things like inheritance or love, knowing, I mean, they're, huh? Security. Security, yep. Structure. What? 
Structure. Structure. Yeah, there's 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 something that kind of puts parameters in your life, and I'm curious. It's interesting you say that structure because we'd call that law or rules, but we sometimes negate how much of a blessing it is to have structure. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm, I'm thinking. I always think about animals and dogs for some reason. I guess that's really where my heart is. I don't know. But yeah, they just they thrive. I know m- most dogs thrive on structure. Most children strive on structure. And most adults do too. We just sometimes don't realize it. Um, so when you work with somebody, mm-hmm. you know, related to them, they are going to like you or love you, depending upon what you do. Bingo! Exactly. You're always having to earn it. It's a very works righteous way or works acceptance way of living life. You, a child never has to work for it. I mean, you just never even thought about it. it, it it's just taken for granted. Unconditional love. Unconditional love. It's a love that just is deeper than, you know, another way that sometimes the scripture describes this is you were once slaves and now, you know, you're free. You're, and that's the context of Romans 8. And you cry out, Abba, Father. I mean, th- think about this. Um, by the way, if you want to open up, I, I'm actually, since we're on this, let's just do this right now. Um, look up, o- open up the adoption if you're online, the adoption handout. And... Uh, Go down to part four, which I think is a page number. Let me see. No, I don't think I put page numbers on this. This no, I didn't. Sorry about that. Uh, Roman number four, adoption versus sonship. You see that? And it shouldn't be adoption versus sonship. That was a mistake. Orphan versus God. I did that, Fred. And no, no wonder you were catching me on that. So you see, adoption versus sonship. That's really supposed to be orphan versus sonship. Um, but look at look it up there, the orphan. You know, think about this. Um, if you're an orphan, you like what you lack, what we kind of describe as a vital daily intimacy with your parent or your father, if we're thinking of God. So there's you lack this vital, life giving, uh, uh, intimacy. If you're a son or daughter, you have a growing assurance that God is my loving father. There's this growing assurance that that I, so so it makes the difference between assurance versus insecurity. One, um, the orphan point to your point there, Jim lives on a succeed fail basis. I mean, you know that if you're a servant or an employee, that you're around as long as you produce. Whereas for a child, a son or daughter, uh, you just belong because you belong because you've always belonged and you always will belong. And and there's a sense of security with that, right? Now it gets more interesting here. Um, so you're learning to live in daily partnership with God if you're a dog. Because think about it, the inheritance. You're, if you're working for the family or you're working for the the, the, the home or whatever, you're, you're kind of a partner now with your father. You're working for something that belongs to all of you. The, this is your problem now if the house is falling apart. Because it's my house. It's going to come to me in my inheritance, given the old... Testament context where that was what necessarily would happen actually you wouldn't sell it Um, and so there's a sense in which kingdom work now has a kind of self-interest to it have you ever thought about that if you're a son or daughter kingdom work has a self-interest I don't mean that selfishly but it it really is something that it belongs to us there's a buy-in there's an ownership there's a sense of we belong to this this belongs to us and it matters we love the church. We love the kingdom because it's my inheritance to have all this. 
very different kind of motivation than you doing it, you know, uh, as, a, as a servant. Um, an orphan is not easily teachable versus a son or daughter has confidence and trust to be submissive. Now, why would that be? Why would an orphan have, you know, maybe a little harder problem being submissive? Supposedly, you know, in this concept at least. No role models? No role model, okay. I'm thinking more back to the relationship to this person. If you're an orphan and you're having a headmaster or someone, what's lacking there that you have as a, to a parent based on what we've said earlier? The sense that they'll always care. The sense that they care. The sense that it's to, I mean, and again, this is a perfect world. You, I know they're bad parents and bad kids, right? But, but the concept being that that if you have this kind of security and assurance of this parent's love and, they, and you know that, that your interest is genuinely to their interest, you, ha- you share life together that way, then there's a trust factor. It's hard to trust someone that you, don't, that you really don't believe loves you and really cares for you. I mean, can you think of some of the, the, the great stories, fairy tale stories? That I mean, think about this for a minute. You know, who, who does this remind you of? What stories? Come on. Cinderella. Cinderella. I mean, you got a lot of these stories, interestingly, in the Victorian era coming out with these orphans. And, you know, of course, you know that that was a time when there were a lot of orphans with the Black Plague and some of that stuff. So, um, tends towards I can do it myself and self-reliance versus able to take risk and even fail in the assurance of God's love. I'm sorry, this thing that got, when it, when it copied, it didn't quite do it the way I had it on my paper. But, um, yeah, think about the difference. If, if I'm not afraid of, of losing my job... If you're afraid of losing your job, you're not going to take a lot of risk. I mean, this really gets to the issue of the steward, uh, the talents. Remember Christ, and he gave him, and, and you don't really understand me. You don't get this, he's saying, if you're not willing to go out there and invest your life in and risk. Because the guy that treated the Lord as an orphan, you could say, said, I'm going to bury this treasure, and I ain't going to play with it because, you know, I, I know you're a cruel master. But the person who goes and takes it and wants to expand his master's kingdom is willing to take risks because he has the assurance that God loves him and that his relationship, his vital relationship with God is not in question. So this issue that we're going to talk about today, justification, um, one more, I'm sorry, critical spirit, the orphan doesn't feel accepted, thus non-accepting, versus the son or daughter has an encouraging and edifying spirit because they feel accepted and thus they accept. You know, you feel accepted, you're going to accept. You feel unaccepted, you're going to be critical. It's, it's part of the human nature. And then, of course, we've already said it, the orphan has something to prove, concerned about building record, whereas the son or daughter is secure in Christ's record and therefore serves in thankfulness. Very different motivation for thankfulness. I mean, for service. Service in fear, service in thankfulness. Any other comments about the... Uh, the round table. But I, I hope that's an adequate introduction to these doctrines that we describe as justification and adoption. And we're going to now get into it biblically. Any, any thoughts or other questions? Yeah. I think another thing to add to is foreigner. Okay. Yeah. That's right. That's another way to put the It's a great metaphor versus citizen. And by the way, you know what? That's a metaphor that the Bible uses. Here's your. I'm always looking for these wonderful, you know, lottery. By the way, wouldn't it be cool? Y'all want to just go ahead and pitch in right now? Let's let's get it. Let's little a lottery group. I don't think I've ever been enticed more than I've been enticed right now. Lisa, did y'all didn't y'all do something? Your school did something like this. We have two hundred ninety tickets among fifth grade. Two hundred and ninety tickets. 
Of course, I don't know how I feel about that. But anyway, that's another question. Um, but yeah, so no, okay, I don't have a lottery, but but here's the here's the question. Um, he just gave us a wonderful analogy, uh, another metaphor, which is the idea of stranger and citizen. Can anybody name the place in the Bible, at least one place in the Bible, where that metaphor is used to describe exactly this? You know where that's in the, that's actually in the Bible, if you weren't thinking about it. Anybody know? Do, 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 do. Well, it probably is in all those places. I don't know. But can you th- actually think of a verse that uses that language? You were once, but now you were once a stranger. Now you're a citizen. Alien, the word alien is actually used. It's in Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, somewhere after verse 11. And he's describing this, and now you were once, and now you're members of the household of God, etc., etc. All right, well, let's open in prayer. Thank you. That was fun. Uh, Lillian, can I ask you to pray for us? Thank you, Lord, just for being you. Mm. And thank you for this this, um, this gathering of, of everyone here and, and, and your blessings and, and all of your caring for all of us and for all of us to know that we are in your family and that um, we are not orphans. Mm. Offering that to all of us, and I ask you to bless all the words that are said tonight, Jesus Christ. Amen. So, why don't you go ahead and have, you know, if you don't have your Westminster Confession, are we online? Can we get online here? Go ahead and go online. You know how to do it, and um, get on a Westminster Confession. You can go to our, I would advise you to start with going to our class if you don't have that already on your computer. So, go to the class on our website, and right there it'll tell you where to go to get the Westminster that we're all working off of. Because I didn't put the, the quotes in the handouts this week, I noticed. So if you can go to that. And what I'd like to do is, as you do that, if, if someone could take out your just, we're going to start with justification. So take out that uh, handout that you have online, chapter 11, justification. And to get us started, uh, if someone could just read the full Calvin quote. get my other glasses that have that really look ugly and have a bobby pin holding it together but it actually seems to work a little better actually these are glasses that I had to switch the lens so they make it go up instead of down that's why it looks so weird but that was pretty cool of me to do that there you go Calvin Now discuss these matters thoroughly, and we must discuss them as to bear in mind that this is the main hinge, the doctrine of justification by faith, on which religion turns so that we devote greater attention and care to it. For unless you first of all grasp what is your relationship to God and the nature of his judgment concerning you, you have neither a foundation on which to establish your salvation nor one on which to build piety toward God. So do you all see the echoes of what we just said? This idea that if you don't get to, if you don't have assurance, if you don't know what, how you relate to God, all the other doctrines then are, are going to go one way or the other. So uh, that's really huge. I, I think I've said it before, but, you know, I would encourage you, if, you're, if your friend is coming to you and they are fearful or they're anxious or they're questioning, you know, whether, you know, all kinds of things. I've made it a habit, if you want to be a gospel-centered counselor, to start with the question of what? 
Well, tell me, you know, what is your relationship to God? How do you, do you feel like you are in a right place with God? Do you feel like God is right? You are right with God. That's another way of saying, do you have assurance that you, that God loves you? Are you assured of that? Are you sure that you, you have salvation? And that question is going to determine how you're going to counsel. Everything hinges on that. For instance, I hope you guys are going to come to the healing service tomorrow. It's a really powerful service. It's an opportunity to not only ask for healing and have hands laid upon you by the elders with anointing of oil, and it can be healing for relationship issues. It can be healing for emotional issues. It can be healing for spiritual issues. And it'll be done quietly with the elders only uh, who are in front. But point being, I hope you'll come and I hope you'll bring your friends. If you have somebody that's suffering, this is an amazing thing. But one of the things we'll do is when you come forward, We'll, if we don't know your name, we'll say, you know, blank, you know, what's your name? My name is Billy Bob, okay? And I say, well, Billy Bob, do you have assurance that God loves you and cares for you and that you belong to him? And that's the first question because everything that James talks about that we're going to hear about tomorrow is predicated upon that. And if not, that's what we're going to pray for, that God would give that person that assurance by faith in Christ alone. And, and then with that assurance comes the promise that you will be healed. And you will be healed. It's a promise, and it's going to happen. Have I enticed you enough? Because you're thinking, God, really? Did you really just say that? Come tomorrow, and you'll hear the whole story. But the point being is, yes, assurance begins everything. Everything. Um, if you're a Christian, and if you can really say, yeah, I really believe that, that God really is... My, that God loves me, that he, I'm unconditionally accepted by God because of my faith in Jesus Christ. Now, that's going to change everything about the way you, you interpret history in your life. Is there any such history? Is there any such circumstance now that can come to you? Is he sovereign? Sure. Is there anything that can happen to you, therefore, that is not somehow to your benefit? Now, if you didn't know you were a Christian, you could say, oh, this could just be the first and this... This horrible thing that happened, my car wreck, could just be the first installment of hell. It's just, just I'm, 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 it's coming and it's just going to get worse. And that's true. It's just a foreshadowing of hell itself. But if it's heaven that awaits me and if God is my father, then this car accident becomes what? Hebrews 12. Anybody guess? The loving Discipline of the Lord, of a father who cares for us and who's, who's training us. If you, I like to think of training. Literally, that word means training as well. Who's training us. You know, when, when, uh, when you're, you know, if you're an athlete, your coach you know, doesn't push you, he doesn't believe in you. you know, when a coach pushes me, that's, that's good news. So I, while I hated it, it was really great that he screamed at me and he pushed me. Because that meant he actually thinks I'm going to accomplish something and he needs me. So when God does that, when he puts, a, sometimes things will happen, okay, God, you're doing some extra, you know, you're, you're spending a little extra time here, aren't you? There's something that I need to work out here because you have a really big plan for my life and you have something special you're wanting to do with me. So let's, let's go, yeah. but see, I could never say that if I didn't have assurance. Calvin pretty much puts that to words here. That's pretty powerful because all the other stuff, do I, you know, sanctification, issues of sanctification, it all comes down to that. All right, let's read a few more of these others. These are just people expressing how important this doctrine is. Dabney, who would like to read that? Indeed, when we consider how many of the fundamental points of theology are connected with justification, 
we can hardly assign it too important a place. Our view of this doctrine just to determine or be determined by our view of Christ's satisfaction. And this, again, carries along with it the whole doctrine concerning the nature and person of Christ. All right. State it again, but I want you to notice and kind of underline it in your head at least, this language of satisfaction. What exactly is he talking about? What is Christ satisfying that allows us to be justified? That is the big theological question that we've got to resolve tonight. What exactly is being satisfied? Um, next, Cunningham. Again, he repeats the same thing, more or less. We won't read it again. So let me just try to, uh, to get us into it. And we've said this before, actually. But what, you know, look at this first question here, and just to get us started, and I just lost my thing there. There we are. How would you distinguish, uh, this issue of justification is going to want us to think about doctrine again. We've talked about this before, so I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it. As there are objective or objectifying doctrines, and there are subjective or subjectifying doctrines. This is an objective doctrine. What do I mean by that? It, it's it's a, about something that has no, that, that is where our own person, our own sub- subjectivity is not involved. So when you say something subjective, what do you mean by that? It's something that's happening to me. It's, I'm experiencing it. So this is a doctrine that we don't experience, but we benefit from. You say you may benefit from it. So in, the, in an objective sense... Um, you know, I go to work and I, and I make money and I bring home money and that is an objective act of love because it's not that I went, it's not that this is, I'm trying to make this work. I don't know if it will. My children did not, I was not doing anything to them directly when I went to work and, and made money to provide for them. I wasn't doing anything to them directly. Mm-hmm. What petting them, touching them, wrestling with them, kissing them, feeling them, whatever, but, or even talking to them. <laughs> But I was doing it for them. And they are the recipients of everything I just did all day in terms of the provisions that comes from that, right? Well, that's an objective doctrine. And so it's very important because if you confuse your salvation and the objective from the subject and, and the subjective, what do you think is going to happen? What's going to go wrong? What you, what's going to get lost if you make everything subjective in terms of how God, how this... Something that we're looking for God to do directly to me in order for me to be saved. What's going to be the problem with that? It becomes about us, not about him. becomes about us. What's going to get lost in our relationship with God? Being personal. Yeah, I'm not sure about that one. I think that would make it more personal, you'd think, on the surface, right? That he's doing something, talking to me. You know, affecting me, infusing something into me. That's a key word, infusion of grace. Those are all subjective things. The cross. Well, the cross is going to be where he does this subjective thing, but I'm thinking more abstractly here. If you have no, if everything is a subjective doctrine, like what Christ does to me, how he infuses grace into me. Like, think about the doctrine of sanctification. Is the doctrine of sanctification, you know what that means? How it is that God makes me actually more holy. That's a subjective doctrine. How God acts upon me directly to make me holy. That's subjective. Justification is he's doing nothing directly upon me. My 
It's, we're going to say that justification has nothing to do whatsoever about how I feel, what I do, anything at all. It's about something he does, totally absent of me. I'm, I'm literally an innocent bystander, and I think a beautiful occasion for that is to think about the cross. Where was humanity when Jesus was on the cross? Was, it Jesus, was, was humanity on the cross? Mocking him. They were down there mocking him, exactly, but, but they were totally out. This was a transaction going on. And who is it going on between? That's the big $1,000 question. The son and the father. Son and the father. That's the right answer. Not the son and the devil. Not the son and us. Not the son and... And you can go, you're going to see five theories of atonement in a minute, historically. But the issue here is to start with the idea that if we're talking about justification, you're going to have to start with the idea that we're dealing with what's called an objective doctrine, a doctrine of, of, of the objective work of Christ and that's very important because today I hear that being confused all the time. People are going to say, oh, I don't feel justified. Well, it doesn't have anything to do with the way you feel. Nothing whatsoever. Not even, a, not, not even relevant. The whole thing was between God the Father and God the Son. And if he did what he was, if he were, if it worked, what this Father and Son thing was going on, you get the, the money. It's like me saying, well, Dad, I didn't. I didn't do anything. I wasn't. I didn't help do anything at work today to make money. You're right. You didn't. I wasn't there. I wasn't encouraging you. I wasn't doing anything. You're right. You weren't. It has nothing to do with you, son. I went to work for CPC, and CPC gave me some money, and it had absolutely nothing to do with you. You're out of. The, you're out of picture here. But here, I'm providing for you. This is what came out of that transaction, and now I want you to go and buy your clothes. <laughs> we'll buy them for you. You see what I'm saying? It's kind of simple, but but it's amazing how simple it is that it can be lost. So in that regard, like huh? It's like a well. Yeah, right. Mm-hmm. We have a well, and our children are the benefactors. That's right. That's right. And they they didn't sign anything on the will. They didn't work with a lawyer. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, had it made up. That's it. So 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 look at what we say here. The objective. It refers to the work that Christ did for us within time and space and that it stands outside of us. It makes us to apprehend the work of Christ as unique as compared to other, you know, uh, the God-centeredness of our salvation together with forming a criteria, and this is very important, forming a criteria for evaluating the subjective work. So we are now going to see that there's a kind of a priority, a priority in the fact that we're going to now begin to interpret my feelings. We're going to interpret uh, all sorts of aspects of my life, but I'm going to interpret it in light of the objective stuff, the objective that is not contingent on me and what's going on in my life. And so there are many other objective doctrines. The doctrine of revelation. It's an objective doctrine. It didn't, God doesn't, this is a big issue. You know, if you've taken the hermeneutics class, or you've, I think we talked about it a little bit in here, there's the, there's the view that where is revelation found? Some will say it's found in Paul. You know, God, you know, was uh, inspiring him. And therefore, we're going to use the Bible to get through, we're going to try to use the Bible as a lens to get in touch with Paul. That's liberalism. Or if you're a neo-Orthodox, you're going to say, no, I'm inspired. I'll read the Bible and then I get inspired. Revelation is in here. The Bible's a kind of window through which I look to find it. And now I'm inspired. It's a subjective doctrine. 
The biblical answer is no, revelation is an objective doctrine. It's what God has revealed outside of you, outside of Paul, even if he used Paul to get it, and even if he speaks to me who receives it. But where is revelation, we say? What's our view of you know, Scripture, right? It's, it is the revelation of God. It's the verbal, plenary, remember all that stuff? Well, this doctrine of justification. Now, y'all, I know you're thinking, oh, man, why is he going on about this? Because this is going to get really huge in a minute if we start to think about, well, then how is it that we judge ourselves to be justified? Is it going to be based on something we do or we're feeling or what we perceive God doing in me? When someone comes to the pastor, I don't know if I should have assurance. Why? Because I sin today. What's wrong with that? Well, I don't, as a Christian, I don't see how I could keep sinning like this. As a Christian, this is something I've been struggling with before I was a Christian. You'd think by now, after 30 years, I'd be done with this problem. So maybe I'm not a Christian at all because I don't see the evidence of it happening in me. And you've got a problem with justification. And you've confused justification, an objective doctrine, with sanctification, a subjective doctrine. It is different to say you are holy in the eyes of God. Or you are lovable, let's put it in more personal terms, in the eyes of God. It is different to say you're lovable or you're holy. So I can say to you, you're holy, and you're going to go, <laughs> you don't know me very well. Just ask my wife. I can say God has declared you to be holy in his sight. And you can say, absolutely. Because it's objective. It has nothing to do with you. And so the focus of sanctification will then obviously take us to the, the, the life, the work, you know, and death of Jesus Christ. And so if you see this, it kind of gets us to the cross, doesn't it? Therefore, Scripture makes, let me get my screen a little wider here. Scripture makes the cross the central focus of the gospel, not our conversion. Conversion is a true doctrine. We talked about it, right? Uh, in, our, in our confession, do you remember the language that's used for conversion? What do we call that? What is conversion language in, in the reformer's mind? Egeneration is it, but that's not the word. Calling. Well, it certainly begins with a call. Effectual calling. Is that what you're talking about? You're close. <laughs> effectual call. It's because we distinguish between the universal call and the effectual call. The universal is we preach the gospel to all people regardless. But with that call, God sends the Holy Spirit to some, which affects them in so far as they are regenerated, given a new nature, which is able them to believe in Jesus Christ. So that's very important. The cross becomes central. And it's, it explains why Paul would say things, I preach nothing save Christ and him crucified. He didn't say, I preach nothing save you being converted. Sometimes I hear modern evangelists, and that's what I hear. The focus is on the decision you're going to make. The focus is on the, the thing that's going to happen to you. Sometimes I hear testimonies, and it's all about the experience of my coming to faith. Some of you know that I've resisted that. When you come into this church, the, the thing you're expecting me to ask you, and we, we might ask you this because it's a relevant question, but tell me about your conversion. Has anybody, Cammy, you guys, and you, you came in here recently. Do you remember the question I started with? And I always kind of start with it if I'm doing it at least. I don't know what the other guys do, but because I'm, uh, I'm trying to avoid the, 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 the story question first because I know that's what will dominate the conversation if I ask it. Do you remember what I asked first? I think I the exact question. 
well, basically, do you all remember? Yeah, just like what, like how do you see God or what do you believe? Yeah, I asked you what you believe. Yeah. What is it you believe that makes you a Christian? That's a classic way I would say it. What, what is it that you believe that makes your question? And right there, I'm, I'm literally intentionally getting you into the door of this church through a question that should tell you gobs about what we think about your salvation and your assurance. I'm doing it very intentionally to say, wow, okay, uh, well, let me think. What is it I believe? You know, and, and then you walk through it in your words, and we're not trying to stick you on anything. And then that's it. And is that sufficient to believe that, to believe the promises of God that those who would put their faith and hope in Jesus Christ, they can be forgiven? You mean I didn't need to hear how it all happened and how experiential it was? And, and da, 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 da. No, that's a great part of the story. <laughs> it's part of God's providence of how he brought and brought. It's all important. I don't mean to suggest that's to minimize it. But that's not the basis of your assurance. So, so that if you hear somebody's better story, oh, I may not be quite as secure as that person. Boy, that's a wow question. And, you know, when I came up, it's interesting because I have a wow story, kind of, you could say. You know, the old, you know, amazing conversion story in a bar and all this kind of stuff that you'd think. And then I married my wife who, who's walked the aisle how many times, Lisa? Five, six, seven, I don't know. How many revivals did you walk the aisle trying to get that elusive assurance, right? And I remember when we, we came into the seminary and we were talking about that, she was like, this is a big, I should let you tell this story, you know, how it set you free. But, but yeah, it's, it's hard. So cross, it's all about the cross and something that happened objectively that great day. So with that being said, um, let's look at chapter 11, verse 1, and someone read that in the confession. Yeah. Before you go on, can you just... Talk a little bit about the other Christian denominations, the mm-hmm. East, the Roman Catholic. Really adhere very strongly to the combination of God's work as well as yeah. works yeah. demonstrate and justify. We're gonna let's let's see if yeah yeah very strongly worded yeah doctrine. I mean the, the doctrines that were that's articulated there. That's right. In terms of Christian faith. So much so that they declared Luther and them an anathema. You know, they, you know, they excommunicated them for it, yeah. Can you comment a little bit? I mean, because everything we've said here makes a lot of sense. Yeah, so why? Yeah. yeah. Otherwise. Yeah. And questions, why? Yeah. yeah. Um, well, it gets to this issue of the, the part of the debate comes to the issue of infuse. So is grace infused upon us? Or is grace imputed upon us? Um, I have a little article that's really short that would really do a nice job of answering that. And I probably could have included it here. And if you remind me, I'll try to send that to you. But, but the gist of this is that, um, I mean, I want to be gracious. All of us want to say that dead or uh, that you know someone who's justified but has no works, no love, no ev- evidence vis-a-vis their life. It begins to it calls into question, right? That that are you really saved? We we should see you you know the same spirit. I mean, think about Paul in, in Romans where he, you know he's preached this where grace abounds. I mean, where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. Chapter five, and then that raises the question. Well, then why don't we continue to sin? And he said, may it never be. And he then gives, don't you understand? And he gives the the image of your baptism, how you were born again, and you're a different creature now. So, so the way that we would, we, the way we, you know, so there's really a difference between saved by grace through faith and works or justified by grace through faith and works versus saying justified by grace through faith alone 
though faith is never alone. Now notice what just happened there. On the second hand, I'll start there, I'm saying, look, the same spirit that enables a dead person to come alive and to embrace Jesus Christ as their Savior is the same spirit that's working life and new life and sanctification in you, such that we would expect that if you are a Christian, that, that you will, there will be some evidence, somehow, somewhere, that you'll see the evidence of a spirit working in your life, a different disposition, whatever it is. But the problem with, but so that's, that's true. But the problem of then, therefore, making the leap and saying, therefore, my assurance will be based on that work begs the question, well, it's, it's so subjective now. It's, it's, well, when's enough? I asked a theologian once uh, who, who's very well known. I won't mention his name because I like him in some of the other stuff he's written. But I said, well, if someone comes to your, is at a conference up at Yale? And I said, well, if someone comes to your study and says, I'm struggling with assurance, what, what would you tell them? Said, I would ask them, well, do you love your neighbor? And I looked him in the face and I said, well, you've just sent me to hell. Because I don't. Not according to the, the, to, the, to the love that Christ illustrated and, and to the rich young ruler who's willing to give up everything for his neighbor, who's willing to even live the golden rule, doing to others you'd have them doing to you. I don't, I don't do that a day in my life. But, but, but that's the question. Well, then, so what is it, relative? Relative kind of, you trying? I mean, how much do I have to try? I mean, wh- where would I ever know? So, and I was kind of doing it before I was a Christian. You know, and if you mean by the relative standard, well, there were times when I actually kind of did that when I was not a Christian. In fact, maybe more than I do now sometimes because I'm now self-righteous and I'm struggling with that sin too. <laughs> you know, I'm kind of but you see what's going on there. So, yeah, I don't know if I answered. So what was historically behind that was, was this real issue of infuse and, and interpreting Romans 5 and trying to understand the, this language of imputation and what that meant. And we'll get to that right now in a minute. Good question. It's huge. Well, we do need to move on. So read uh, verse 1. And I want you to really look at this. This is pretty amazing. Uh, it's chapter, you know, section 1 of, of chapter 11. Those whom God effectually calls... Are we doing that loud? Yeah. Okay. Those whom God effectually calls, he also freely justifies, not by infusing righteousness into them, but by pardoning their sins and by accounting and accepting their persons as righteous, not for anything wrought in them or done by them, but for Christ's sake alone, nor by imputing faith itself, the act of believing, or any other evangelical obedience to them as their righteousness, but by imputing the obedience and satisfaction of Christ onto them. They receiving and resting on him and his righteousness by faith, which faith they have not of themselves, it is a gift of God. What what just immediately strikes you about the way this is written? Anything kind of pop you? Did you know did you notice any repetition here? And if so, where was it? I mean, how many times can you use the word not in one sentence? There's a lot of contrast going on. And it's a lot of, in, there's a real desire to, to emphasize what it's not because of the awareness, historically, of the confusion. So it's pretty worthy to really notice that. So let's walk through it a little bit slower. So first of all, you know, he also freely justifieth. What does freely mean? He wasn't coerced. He wasn't manipulated. It wasn't in any way contingent upon what we're doing. It had nothing to do with us, freely. 
So he freely justifieth, and then not by, here's that word, Jim, infusing. Now, what is an infusion, doctor? (laughs) Something external is embedded into your body. Yeah, that's good. But it is subjective now. It, It happened to me. It's something. And so if you are infused with righteousness... Therefore, rightly, you would look to your righteousness to discern evidence of assurance. And so they're making it very clear, and this was the debate, wow. that it's in, not infused. It is what? But by pardoning their sins, and here's this key word that is a translation of the word that's in the scripture imputation, and by accounting. Now think about it. What does that mean, Account. It's, a, it's to credit. It's, it's, to, it's, to, it's an economic term, right? To credit something <coughs> by accounting it to them. And so, so what you have here, they're persons as righteous. Not in anything wrought, and notice this word, in, I-N, in them. Or done by them, but for Christ's sake alone. What he has done was sufficient for me to be credited, accounted, as righteous. And it then goes on, it says, now here, here's an interesting, nor by imputing faith itself. Now what does that mean? My faith isn't a work, in other words. My faith doesn't save me. My faith is simply the, the, the receptacle that receives it. So if, if, I, if you offer me something, say, here, here Preston, take, take this, this $10. I can't say my hands gave me $10. I'm going to say my hands took, received the $10 from you who gave it, who accredited it to me. Mm-hmm. So I, you know. So, so if you're doing the Venmo, I guess we don't give people dollar bills anymore. We do Venmo, right? So you do the Venmo, and um, what do you do? You, you, you accept it. I mean, that's a really – if you, anybody know – nobody know – anybody know Venmo? Come on, you got to know Venmo. I do Venmo. Ven, ven, not Venmo, Venmo. But, but it's a little thing where you can send money to your kids. Yeah, George, I know you don't like what I'm saying. <laughs> he told me he's going to leave, and he said, no, don't think I don't like what you're saying. So that's why I said that. Very, very thoughtful of them. <laughs> so, um, yeah, so Venmo, it's a beautiful illustration if you've ever done it because, you know, you, someone sends you some money, you know, it's the tip or whatever you're doing, but you've got it, it's sitting there. It, it's not yours yet. It's sitting there, it's an electronic uh, transfer that will go into your account. It's a great, man, this is a great, man, this is a great analogy. And, and what you've got to do is push the button and it gets transferred into your account. And you can see it, you know, boop, it's accepted. And that's what faith is. So I'm not going to give any power to that. I'm not going to say, wow, aren't I great? I just saved myself. I just pushed the button. It came to me because it was given to me freely. And that's what they're saying here. Don't, don't confuse faith with itself with the work. Because if you do that, what are you going to do? Now you're going to start looking at your faith. Now you're going to come to that bridge if you were here a couple of weeks ago. Remember Dabney's letter and... And you're going to be struggling with your faith. And what you're going to do is you're going to look in. Let me see if I can find faith. And you start examining yourself, your faith, for your assurance. That's a really bad idea. 
Because it doesn't really matter how much faith you have. How much faith you have doesn't matter a bit. It's do you have a little millisecond enough to go to put it in Christ. So as long as I find a way to get that little pointer over that little green thing that says accept and I push it, done. And that's just a will thing. That's all it is. It's a will thing. Thankfully, I don't even have to have a cursor in a, in a hand. <laughs> so this is really important to know to slow down on this language. The act of, he says, look at that. Nor by imputing faith itself, the act of believing didn't save me. Or any other evangelical obedience to them. By evangelical, it means subjective, experiential, conversion, experience. As they're righteous, but by imputing, that's that word crediting, the obedience and satisfaction of Christ unto them, they receiving and resting on him and his righteousness by faith. So that's what faith is, receiving and resting. That's all it is, just receiving and resting it. Which faith they have not of themselves. Now this is great. I mean, now they're going hyperbole here. And not even your faith is something you could give yourself, Christian. Now, who are you indebted to? Who, who are you thankful to? I mean, it all is a gift. Even the ability to receive it's a gift. And that's how radical grace is. And that's why justification is the essence of everything in our Christian experience. And why we had a 350-year upheaval about it. So there we go. Faith. Any questions about that? Um, hey, Preston, yeah. Let's sort of make a comment. Yeah, sure. Having been in the corporate world for so many years mm. and having spent so mm. many hours debating precise words in PowerPoint for each bullet, <laughs> I am so impressed by how this group of men mm-hmm. parsed these words and came to agreement this is a really complicated topic. And mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. This had to take a huge amount of effort. It did. Prayer and the working of the Holy Spirit to get them Amen. to agree on how to articulate. It's really, I have to tell you, it's so impressive. 1,192 days, to be exact. This, this took 45. And, and, and yet it took hundreds of years. And this is why, Jim, we read the Bible with our church communally across the ages because we every generation continues to build and work it's a progressive ongoing event of interpreting the scripture with our church with our family of god and we're interpreting it right now with people who lived 350 years ago while they were interpreting with people who had died like justin mark you know just you know john hoos and these are all people who were dying for this very idea don't you think they would take the time to get it right and to really be careful so absolutely absolutely and they're very verbal cultures you know and they were good that way. Go down to, you so number two, you see number two where I talk about theories of atonement. This will further clarify, and I talked to you about that word satisfy. Well, if you come down here, um, there's this, uh, it really gets, this, it, the idea of atonement, you've heard that way, to, to, to atone for something is to satisfy. That's what it's talking about. The word in the Greek is propitiation. If you've ever seen that, it's translated propitiation. If you've seen that, it's in Romans 3, for instance. And um, this language is, is actually uh, taken from the image of the mercy seat in the Old Testament, where it was said that the sin was satisfied, and it was satisfied by the very image of the blood on top of the mercy seat. And so there's this image of a propitiation where God is satisfied with the sacrifice of a substitute. 
It all packs into that word. It's a huge word. And so I don't have time here to talk about all the, the etymology of atonement, but basically at issue was what was satisfied. You see that in the addendum? What was satisfied by Christ's sacrificial death so as to secure the forgiveness of sins for those in Christ by faith? And what B.B. Uh, Warfield did in the 19th century over at Princeton is he arranged this question historically uh, according to the conception each entertains of the person or persons on whom the work of Christ terminates as they fall naturally into five classes. So he's asking the question, when he went to the cross or when he offered his life, who, what or who exactly was he satisfying? That is, atoning, who, what was the problem basically? And you have these various views. And what's interesting is all of these views have an, uh, an element of truth to them except when you apply it to the idea of, of atonement in the sense of justification. You'll see what I'm saying here. So, for instance, you have ransom theories. Have you heard that? Or Christus Victor? And what's being satisfied here is Satan. So it's true that we've been redeemed. We've been, this language, well, what does it mean to redeem us and to be redeemed in the sense that did, did, did Jesus Christ pay his life as, as payment, as ransom, to the one who held us captive, Satan? Well, see, that would be to make Satan and Christ the protagonist, you know, going on. And that's not true. I mean, if, you know, that Satan is an angel. He's not a, he's not a god. And, and, and Christ had no need of satisfying an angel. He can just go, and you're gone. You know, so he created the angel. So, so that's the fundamental problem. It, gives, it elevates Satan to too high of a status, but you can see that there's a sense in which it's true, though, that we have been robbed, if you will, from Satan. It's true that there's a victory in the cross, that, that there's a sense of victory. And, and there's, so there's, there's nothing, it's not that we don't see Christ as the victor of revelations. It's just the sense that when, it, when, it's, when it's getting to the very fundamental issue of our atonement for salvation, it, it doesn't quit. So I give you, I'm not going to walk through this whole thing. I'm just trying to give it to you quickly. You can go back and look at this. Um, so I give you text, etc. But that's the ransom theory. And we're going to go, not nah, right. The mystical theory. This conceives the work of Christ as terminating physically on us, so affecting us as to bring us by an interior and hidden working upon us into participation with the one life of Christ. The fundamental characteristic of these theories is that the discovery of the saving fact is not in anything which Christ taught or did, but in what he was upon his incarnation. So what this is mystical, for obviously, but it's the idea that Christ, in becoming man, human, mystically unites to us in a manner that just our being affiliated with Christ is the essence of our salvation or atonement. Now, again, is there something right about that? Does Christ talk about union with Christ? Heck yeah. Is that an important doctrine that we share in the cross of Christ, that we participate, koinonia, in the body of Christ? Yes, it is. And I think there's a lot to that. And that's sort of the Eastern position, you know, of, of what's called, you know, divinization or, um, I'm just blank, what's the other way they use it? Um, and I actually agree. There's something about that's very sacramental, we would say. You'd say, well, hold it, Preston. I've heard you kind of talk about union and participation with Christ. And there's a way, you know, it's all true. It's all there. But don't, look, don't talk about atonement that way is the point. 
there is a sense where I, which, in which I have mystic union. But this would be the view of, of a church who says, if you partake of the Lord's Supper, or if you are baptized, you are atoned for because you've participated with Christ vis-a-vis the sacramental union. And there's a historical word that's called sacerdotalism. And that's what that is. Now, think about what sacerdotalism did for the church. If you're the church, and you're the only one that can dispense the sacraments, which is true, as a means of grace, the power you just gave to the church, if you're saying that the church, vis-a-vis giving you baptism, is, is the atonement for your sin... You've re-crucified Christ every time you do the Lord's Supper, which is exactly what the Reformers said to them, in their view of that mystical transformation of the, of the stuff, this physical stuff called bread wine. And baptism, the same thing, as if it was magic water. I mean, I'm being facetious a little bit, but that's a concern. So this is the mystical theory. We're going to go, no. Number three, moral influence theory. Again, it conceives the work of Christ as doing, having a work upon us. But here, it's by way of a kind of lawyer or a better, uh, it's an influence. It's, it's someone who has an influence upon me. And so the cross becomes something that is done to move me to follow after Christ. Like an example. But more than an example, it's, 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 um, let me try to think of a better. You, you, you see, do you hear what I'm saying on it? It's, it's this idea that the what the uh, the purpose of Christ's cross was to influence me to then get my life right and get right with God. That's sort of a liberal position, um, and I go through some of that there. So Jesus comes to demonstrate God's love for us. True, um, and I give you some people here about this. Sin is a type of sickness from which we must be healed. Well, that's true, but it's more than that. We're dead. And on and on it goes. But the problem is God's love is not inconsistent with his justice, and we, off we go. Then you have the, what's called the governmental theory. Um, it, this, this is close to, the tr- to where we're going to go, but here it's, it's a demonstration. And let me just read it. Conceive the work of Christ as terminating on both man and God, but on man again primarily and on God only secondarily. Those suppose that the work of Christ so affects man by the spectacle of the suffering borne by him as to deter men from sin. And by thus deterring men from sin enables God to forgive sin with safety to his moral government of the world. No less than moral influence theories, the atoning fact is man's own reformation. So, so here again, it's this idea that, that, that it's an influence, it's another form of influence theory. But here, it's he goes, he 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 he. he, he Shows us how, basically, this was, he shows us how to be righteous so that we can follow his example and be righteous. It's a little different. The, 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 the other one's influencing me to, to want him. This is saying, you know. So you can read through it again. Hear the, hear the advocates of these things. Where we're going to come down and where the Reformation came down, and I think the Bible comes down, obviously, is what we call, sometimes people call satisfaction theories or penal substitution. Here, we conceive the work of Christ as terminating primarily on God and only secondarily on us, as in indirectly as a benefit. Christ sympathetically entered into our condition, became a true and perfect sacrifice offered to God. Remember, he's a true and perfect man, so he can do that as man, as human. Of intrinsic value, ample for the expiation or satisfaction of our guilt, and at the same time as a true and perfect righteousness offered to God as fulfillment 
of the demands of his people. And on being accepted by God, accruing to their benefits, so that by this satisfaction they were relieved at once from the curse of their guilt as breakers of the law and from the burden of the law as a condition of life, and this by a work of such kind and performed in such a manner as to carry home to the hearts of men a profound sense of indefectible righteousness of God and to make them a perfect revelation of his love and holiness. So it's just this whole package put together here. But the gist of it is what you've heard so many times, it almost sounds probably commonplace, is we believe Christ was a, was a righteous substitute. So the word that Luther used was that the, it was an alien righteousness, that we are righteous by a righteousness not our own, but whether one credited to us. And it's the scapegoat idea in the Old Testament, in, this, in that whole idea. Now, guys, I don't even want to ask you, are there any questions? I mean, if you go even a tad deeper than I just did, there are questions, and I understand that. But I just wanted to at least give you a picture of what church history has been arguing about with regard to this doctrine. And you, you and, it, and hopefully it will help you as you interact with other people, as you think about it yourself. Knowing what these theories are might help you from going into the ditch. When you're a Sunday school teacher and someone asks you, well, you know, and somehow you'll, you'll hear it. It's amazing when you get to know, know theology like this that you'll hear it coming out of people in ways they, don't, they would never, of course, know that, well, they're a gluteus or they're a blank. But you hear it and you go, well, that, that sounds similar to a, to a heresy. And it's going to make you a lot more astute. I know some of you are here hoping to be teachers, et cetera. You know, it's, it's going to make you a lot more astute when you're sitting in that little fifth grade class. And, and all of a sudden you see a curriculum talking about Jesus and how the cross, in, you know, influ- in, influences us to be holy so that God will love us. And it'll come out sometimes and stuff. You'll hear stuff like that. It sounds so good for kids. Because if I've ever seen, if there's any temptation to be moralistic, it's children's Christian literature. It's just constantly being good boy and bad girl kind of stuff. And they're prone to that already. So you're going to constantly be looking for that and saying, hold it, hold it, no, 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 no. He, he's, you know, and you're going to have to explain to him. You know, it's, he, he did something that you couldn't do, and it didn't do it to you. It did it for you, and he gave you the benefit. And you'd have to come up with some analogy because you're going to know your fifth grade kid, and I won't. And you're going to say, this is what a fifth grade kid would hear it like. And that's going to be because of what you just did here. Hopefully. Right, Lillian? One of our best teachers of all time. <laughs> all right. Let's, any questions? I know we're taking a lot of time to do this stuff. We've got about 15 minutes left. So um, I'll tell you what I want to do next here. So look at number 10. We've kind of talked about the rest of this. Uh, I'm just looking at the other stuff that we've, you know, by the way, there's your, there's your language there. I mentioned we were going to get to The heart of the Reformation debate with Rome was over the distinction between imputation and fusion. You see that? Note, for instance, the Council of Trent said that the matter, if anyone saith that men are justified either by the sole imputation of Jesus, justice of Christ or by the sole remission of sins to the exclusion of the grace and the charity which is poured forth in their hearts by the Holy Spirit, it is inherent to them, let them be an anathema. Um, Luther often used the word alien righteousness. We talked about that. And I won't. I think we know what's being attempted here. So let's look at very quickly, though. Um, you know, I give you some scripture references on number eight. You see that? And I hope that you'll. You know, imputation then is is the declarative. Think of it as a declarative act. 
like a judge who declares you not guilty legally. You could do that even if you're guilty, but you've satisfied now, um, you know, the penalty. Isn't that right? Anybody lawyer here? Uh, you ever see that 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 uh, that picture, Double Jeopardy? Oh, it's a great movie, man. What's her name? It's a good movie. Oh. Yes. I can't remember. But basically, it's about a wife whose husband tries to kill her, and um, and and well, Ashley died, and she she's thought to be dead, and all, no, 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 who fakes that she killed him, and then he comes out of the ocean with a new identity that he had prayerfully fabricated. So actually, I'm getting somewhere with this, and we're having fun, I hope. And, um, and so she goes out, and she's put in, in prison, and she's literally in prison, and, and she now gets condemned. She goes to jail, and she satisfies her jail term. She gets out of jail, and she's trying to find what, you know, her husband and wants to get her kid back. Long story goes, there's the climax where she actually gets in his office and she's got a gun and she's saying, I don't care about you. I just want my kid. And he's saying, you know, and she says, blank, I can't remember, you know, because she's been taught by this legal expert, I can kill you in front of Times Square and nobody could do anything to me because I've already, I've already paid the penalty of killing you. That's really cool. And I think it's true. And so basically... Um, that's what's going on here. It's, it's credited. Once it's been satisfied, the law has been satisfied, you walk out not guilty, or better, righteous, because you weren't guilty back then, but righteous. That's really cool. And that's the basis of our salvation. You want to ask a question at this point? Because I want to turn lastly to, to adoption. We haven't done a lot of it. Let me, let me look at a couple more of these. Look at justification for a minute. So notice what faith is, by the way. So this begs the question, okay, then what, is, what does it mean to have faith? Or rece- and it's really simple. It's just to receive it. We've talked about that. But it also involves resting. That's assurance. You receive it, and you just sit on it. And then you're going to say to me, that's just too good to be true. It couldn't be that easy. That's it. Simple. You want it? You can have it. Simple. And well, well, won't I take advantage of that? Won't that lead to licentiousness? Won't that mean this? Won't that no? Because I know from a God-centered kind of theology that you wouldn't want it, except that you're going to be born again. And if you're born again, you have a different will now, and you are actually going to want to be thankful and to please that your Father, even though you're going to have that will struggling with the old will that's not yet completely destroyed, and the rest of your life is going to be living in turmoil in that struggle. Get used to it. <laughs> you're going to struggle. But if you're struggling, is that an evidence that you're not a Christian? No. No. no, quite the contrary. If you're struggling, that's the best evidence I know that you're a Christian. Because there's a conflict in natures. Amen. You know? Remember Paul? The very thing I want to do, I can't do. The very thing I can't do, I want to do. You know, blah, 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 blah. Who's going to set me free from this body of death? Praise be to God through Jesus Christ. I just summarized the whole chapter. That's pretty cool. <laughs> okay, let's go. Right now I'm still at chapter 11. So just take the time. I hope you've read it. I really encourage you every week to read this stuff before we come in. And I say that every time because we're not going to always be able to read it all and it'll really help you to kind of ask questions. But is there anything about justification you want to ask right now?
By the way, how was Moses saved? By faith. By faith. By grace through faith in who? Jesus Christ. Christ as he was foreshadowed in the sacrificial system of the temple. No difference. And that's the last question here, number six. Okay, adoption. Someone read that one right next in chapter 12. This is, I think, to my knowledge, I don't know of many, if any, other creeds that have the doctrine of adoption. It's always assumed under justification, but I think it was brilliant that they put this here, and they wanted, it's really interesting. Just notice the historical oddity of this, though, that after all this stuff about justification, they have a chapter 12, a whole chapter, with one section on adoption, because they were so enthralled with this. This is really just the, the other side of the coin, if you will, but it's really a precious doctrine. Let's look at it. Who wants to read that? All those? Go ahead. Sure. All those that are justified, God vouchsafe in and for his only son, Jesus Christ, to make partakers of the grace of adoption, by which they are taken into the number and enjoy the liberties and privileges of the children of God, have his name put upon them, receive the spirit of adoption, have access to the throne of grace with boldness, are enabled to cry, Abba, Father, are pitied, protected, provided for, and chastened by him as by a father, yet never cast off but sealed to the day of redemption and inherit the promises as heirs of everlasting mm. salvation. Mm. You, know, you, 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 you know, you ought to put that little, this is where this, constitutional, you know, document of theology becomes something you put on your mirror and just say, just just look at that. If you're if you're struggling with self esteem, if you're struggling with, with assurance, with with a belief that everything that happens in your life happens for a loving purpose, just put that thing there. Just read it. Just read it. Over and over. Memorize it. You know, it's a it's a really amazing document how careful again the wording is to try to explain to help us experience that incredible existential sense of safety. If, if justification was talking about your relationship to God as judge and therefore you find yourself in a courtroom, what room are you in now? Tell me the room. What room comes to your mind? This might come out of the image of your own background with your parents and all of that. Where, where would you be right now? The family room. The family room, some would say? <laughs> the question was, uh, if justification has taken us to a courtroom wherein God is the judge and we are the, what, defendant? Or, yeah. Then, and, and we are now right with the judge through justification being declared. You're righteous. You're declared not guilty. What room did this doctrine we call adoption put you into? The answer was the family room. Now think about, I say that, maybe another room. How many of you and your kids, we, 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 we let our kids do this for a while, but it, it, it would kind of stop probably, I don't know, Lisa probably thought too early, I probably thought too late, I don't know what it was, but, but the, the, the bedroom. I mean, and maybe that's a better image here. All of a sudden now, our confession wants us to go to the bedroom. Wants us to go to that place where children without, I mean, it just brings tears to my eyes. Where the little children with pity pat, you know, leggings, 
run into your room, jump in with an abandon with no hesitation that mommy and daddy are going to just move right over and go, come on in here. And that's the language that's here. The language of a God who is now in a bedroom or in a family room, if that's where you image it, or whatever that place is. And it's just, there's no words too sweet for the confession here. To say, this is how you are with God now. And that's why we cry out, Abba, Father. That's why we approach his throne with boldness, Hebrews, because he's my father, man. I got an inside track here. What would that mean for you? I'm, I'm cutting some corners here because we don't have the time to go through this whole thing, but tell me how that's going to change your life and our life. It brings an intimacy, a closeness. And a an intimacy, trust. a closeness. A trust. Trust, yeah, trust. Huge. I mean, if this God that's in the bed controls the universe, now the universe can't hurt me. That's, that's what I was trying to get to. Think about that for a minute. This in person, I mean, have you ever had that experience to you remember seeing your father or mother or someone that's a really up there doing something big or something and then think, hey, my dad, I can just go there and hug him anytime I want. Everybody else is scared of him. I don't know, I don't know of an analogy like that. But that's what's happening here. This guy controls the universe. Everything whatsoever that happens, he controls it. And I know who's controlling that event in my life. I know who's controlling that, that car accident, that disease, that this, that, that. The, everything that's happening, I know who controls it. I know who's got it. That's my daddy. And therefore, I trust him that this event, this thing, this everything that we're talking about, this struggle, this internal emotional struggle, this relational struggle, this physical struggle, this every struggle in the world, I know that it has been carefully designed to somehow produce in me a better life, a better redemption, further my redemption. Can you think of a passage that, that says that? Anybody? Everything works together for good. There you go. For those who love God. And this is the love that he's talking about. The Abba Father. Remember, what's happening in Romans 8? Abba Father. That's the passage where that happens. Those who are children who experience this kind of relationship with their father through justification, now adoption, you're no longer an orphan. You're no longer wonder if I'm allowed in the room. We began, some of you weren't here, but we began the discussion with comparing the difference between an orphan and a son or daughter. The orphan doesn't feel accepted. The orphan is insecure. The orphan has no clue whether the, you know, and, they, and they're always going to feel like they've got to earn their relationship to the parents. One of the hardest things that you have to do when, you're, when you experience yourself identity-wise as an orphan is, you know, they don't really have my blood. You know, I don't really have this thing with and so there's a sense in which they're trying to, you know, we're no longer orphans. Or another analogy the scripture uses, the, the analogy of employee to employer, i.e. slave, master. And a slave is, is relating to the, to the master as on a conditional basis of performance. And the master might get mad and do something against them and, and hurt them. But a son or daughter just doesn't relate to God that way. It's our father. And so it's just so different. Um, this adoption doctrine, I hope you take the time. This gets real kind of booky and, and theologically. 
But um, take a time to review this if you haven't already. And just, just think about it. What you're going to hear him doing is what I call Hebrew, the Hebrew method of me- meditation. The Hebrew method of meditation is not to, to look inward and to meditate and to try. You know, I actually, I'll, I'll end with this story because I want you to do this. Uh, when I was uh, out of college and there was some sense in which I was beginning to think that maybe I was being called to the ministry. I'd been doing ministry in campus as an undergrad. But, I, you know, I had a really strong conviction that I had to be called. It's not something you do as a, 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 because you, you just haven't found anything else really that you want to do. Uh, it's something you do because you really have to do it. There's a compulsion to do it. And so I got out and started working in Atlanta and, and was pursuing other opportunities. And during that time, I had a colleague who was who's Hindu. And I was trying to convert him. He was trying to convert me. So we basically said, okay, I'll do you, I'll do you this. I, I'll, I'll spend a night, a day with you and your, your deal. And uh, you'll spend a day with me and my deal. And so I was going to take him to church. He's going to take me to his, and I can't remember the thing, where you do the mantras all night. And I went with him, and all night long, all night long, what do you think we did? Chant. We chant. And I asked him before we went, so here's what we're going to do, and, and it's really cool. And he was talking about this, and it's this melodic, same, just going on and on. And I said, well, why, why do you do that? And he says, well, we're trying to rid ourselves of everything external so that I can go deep into my soul and find the Spirit of God there. And that's, that's, the reason, that's what it's all about. That's a meditation that a lot of, most people when they say the word meditation, they're thinking like that. For the Hebrew, it's just the opposite. I'm going to try to do everything I can do to rid myself of self so that I can think and process and review what is external to me, God and his revelation. And so to meditate literally is to cogitate. It's to think, okay, so the Bible, it's, it's back to that web, of, I, that web of belief that we've talked about. It's trying to ask the question, so how does adoption relate to effectual calling? And how does effectual calling relate to justification? And let me try to process this and, and see the comparison. You know, I'm trying to understand it even as it brings to me greater clarity about who I am and how I relate to God. And so this is what you see, uh, this 19th century theologian, uh, John Garrodeau, in this, quote, doctrine of adoption in his discussions of theological questions. And you're just going to see an amazing attempt to just kind of go, okay, what, what is the grounds of this doctrine? What, what's the basis for it? Brrr, scripture. You know, how does this doctrine relate to justification? Brrr, how does this doctrine relate to, to regeneration? Brrr, and it's just going to make you get really honed in. It's another way of, of doing theology that I'm introducing you to here. And so you might want to do it, but at the end of the day, just try to – and there's a place there we talked about in the beginning where there's a little chart that says, okay, let's just think about this. How would it affect your life if you have the identity of a, of a son or daughter versus of an orphan? How would it change you? And you see that in Section 4 if you weren't here at the beginning – um, and it really is pretty profound when you stop to think about it. I mean, if you're feeling accepted, how do you treat other people? Accept you accept them. If you're feeling judged, what do you think you're going to do? <coughs> or if you're still insecure about your being judged, you're going to judge others. It's an amazing thing how this, you can see this. going through. So if you are, you know, you're living on a success-fail basis, how is serving the church or how is doing something, giving money going to do? How, what's the attitude there? 
Kind of a dutiful, I got to do, it's a duty that I must fulfill. You're not going to get a lot, it's not going to be a joyful, cheerful giver, as Paul asked for. But if you're doing it with nothing at all to gain from it in terms of your relationship to God, because that's already unconditionally given, if it's not done out of a sense of, of, of succeed, fail basis for acceptance, then what are you going to do? You can't give enough. You're, you're, you're thinking, I couldn't outgive my God. I couldn't outgive the Lord. And it's just a privilege to, to be a part of his work and to serve him. And, and it's going to come down. And some people will say, well, let me just kind of browbeat you a little bit and tell you how awful you are that you don't feel the joy of the Lord. And I'm going to go, yeah, you're right. Because you're, you're going the wrong way. Let me tell you how loved you are. More love than you ever imagined how much you're loved. Let me try to show you that love. And let me just see how you will start loving now, do you have a scripture for that? Hint, First John. Do, do, do. Perfect love cast out fear. Next line. We love because he first loved us. That's the son. That's the daughter. I don't love my, my, my dad or mom because, you know, I'm afraid of them. At least not now. They might have been a little dutiful loving when I was a young kid. But now I love them just because I love them. And I couldn't possibly outlove them if I think about what they've done for me. And on it goes. All right, let's, let's close in prayer. Father, thank you for all of this. It's been fun to play with it and talk about it, but we know this is, these things are incredibly and deeply affecting and deeply important for us. And we pray, Lord, that with all that we've said and done tonight, um, that we know we need the work of your spirit to implant it into our spirit, to do that powerful and mystic thing where, where you enable us by faith to believe what we have been talking about, to really believe it, to believe it in a way that it changes our identity and our security and our trust, to really believe it, to where our disposition towards life changes. We know, Lord, that these are the truths that can change our life, but we know that they're truths that can only be given and received by grace through faith alone. So give us these truths into our heart. Change us tonight and to continue to change us and help us to come back over and over again to this amazing and fundamental doctrine, justification by grace through faith alone. Now, sons and daughters who can cry out, Abba, Father. We do this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.